we closed out the last time's episode by saying the next time we were going to speak to everybody was after a trailer had dropped. And now that time has passed. And because we were so, what's the word? I don't want to say, give us too much credit <laughs> for our lucky guess. <laughs> but uh, here we are post first actual-ish trailer so what's up <laughs> what's up and you probably recognize the voice our friend jeff aka brendan beefish is back on the show hey good to be back how you guys doing tonight time you're on the show with us so i'm excited to it's, talk it's about a lot of fun. with you I, I seem to like come on the show when there's so much more to talk about than just these two chapters i don't remember what it was a couple times ago but we do that something on purpose else George. yeah well i appreciate that <laughs> we do that on purpose remember as you have pages of notes for today's episode i have two pages of notes but they're all in uh in loose leaf paper that i uh i wrote down the notes for because i was reading the chapter rereading the chapters and and going through it and i said hey you know i'm gonna try, try to be a little bit old-fashioned today i'm gonna write these things actually down in notes and then you know eventually i'll transfer them over to like a, a document or whatnot is that in uh oh man i was about to, my joke is failing <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Is this like a word star joke? <laughs> <laughs> just trying to say, is you writing on paper trying to appeal to a younger audience? Because I it, don't know it, if that's working. <laughs> it's retro, you know. The younger audience doesn't necessarily gravitate towards things that you see online anymore. You have to have like the old school. It's like the it's like like a record, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody has CDs anymore. Everybody MP3s overplayed, so now everybody has to have records and record players. So I'm taking it back old school. Pen and paper. I'll even like shuffle paper a little bit mm-hmm. so that you know that it actually got written. <laughs> I love it. Today on the podcast, we're talking about John 5 and Tyrion 6. We've been looking forward to these two chapters. We've been looking forward to having you on the show, Jeff, specifically for these two chapters from back in the day when we all came together to create A Feast with Dragons. Now, I think something like 40%. Something like that through the reading order. And I know you've been listening along with the podcast. How do you feel now that we've reached this point and having freshly read them and taken notes for the recording today? It's it's interesting the way that it came together almost two years ago now, right? I mean, well, maybe a year ago or so, um, a year and a half. But it was it was interesting how it came together. And now the reading order was much more thematically based than necessarily chronological or sequential, which I think is a really cool way of addressing two books that address a lot of similar themes. Um, and these two chapters almost, they, they go hand in hand with each other really, really well in the reading order itself. Um, you have John being the dragon, uh, the secret dragon, and then you have Tyrion then, you know, unraveling quote unquote, he's already unraveled the dragon in the last chapter, but he starts to unravel it even a little bit more in this chapter. So the reading order just works out really, really well and really perfectly. So it's a lot of fun to like follow you guys uh, as you go through the books um, together. And and these, I have to say, John 5 is a great chapter and I like it a lot, but Tyrion 6 is probably in my top five favorite chapters in all of Song of Ice like, and Fire. How many so straight lines of bold. caps do you guys have in your notes uh, uh, during some moments multiple. of those Tyrion chapters? <laughs> multiple. <laughs> I'm just consulting my notes real quick. I don't see any all caps, but I have a bunch of like exclamation points beyond, beyond uh, with different things. Before we dive into John and Tyrion, I know that we're kind of anxious to get into those chapters. I know a lot of stuff has happened 
in fandom today. And we kind of have to roll through. Jeff, I think you're going to give us a summary and catch us all up on uh, what happened on Twitter today. Aside from that picture that we all love. <laughs> right. But that picture is important. And it's it's a big part of it. It, it. it sounds really silly when you actually like start to talk about it. But basically, George set up, George R. Martin set up a Twitter account in like 2014 or so. And then he basically, all it is is just a bunch of posts to his blog and links to his blog until last night. And last night, I'm going to have to find the tweet itself. George came on Twitter and said, I wonder what my fans will be talking about in the comments today. Oh, right. The same ultra motivational speeches <laughs> I get every day. Yay. I read that. The very first thing that George has ever said on Twitter beyond... um just links to his his uh, is not a blog on Live Journal, right? So kind of took everybody by surprise that George was tweeting today or tweeting mm-hmm. last night, and kind of blew up overnight. And then today, about eight hours ago from when we we're recording, uh, George puts up this picture of himself <laughs> in his trademark suspenders and his striped shirt. And he's got a hat on and it's to the sideways. And the caption is, so my publishers say I have to start trying to appeal to a younger audience. What's up? <laughs> and it, I think it's important to note that he's probably at a con in this picture. It looks like he's at a diner or something like that. You see like a family like behind him. You see uh-huh. there's like a kid back there just hanging Denny's out with some friends. Denny's or something. Or yeah, he's at Denny's. You know, <laughs> For sure. George would be the kind of Red writer, cracker, even though he's a multimillionaire, that would go to Denny's for breakfast or for lunch. I went to Denny's last night. <laughs> Denny's is a great <laughs> restaurant. <laughs> well, so do we think that this is going to be a new thing? Like, Can we expect, do you think, more actual updates from him on Twitter instead of just his usual live journal reposts? Maybe. I or mean, is it, this just like a teaser like dip in the water kind of thing see that's what a lot of people that's why what got people excited is that they said well george has never posted on twitter before maybe this is just the start of some sort of marketing campaign for the wins of winter uh, and, and that's think? really i don't know <laughs> i, I would I mean, be surprised but do we need a marketing campaign for wins of winter like that no 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 you don't no Remember when Kanye started using Twitter, Hannah, back in the day? This was mm-hmm. post Taylor Swift incident, and he kind of went out for a while after 808s. And then in the ramp up to Dark Twisted Fantasy, this is before he had even dropped the first single. He started Twitter gold using social media more and doing more things, releasing more photographs, and then eventually it came. So I don't know if it's the same kind of back end thing that they're doing here it's tough to say but it is strange after all this time for this to happen like this and for george, for george just to mention publishers at all just the word publishers knowing that he's in touch with publishers i think is just great news for everyone <laughs> i Not know that he wouldn't be but it's just good to see i've always felt like though that he's been fairly accessible you know and so while i'm excited that he's tweeting i feel like I don't really know if it really means anything other than like another touch point for him. You know what I mean? But I don't know. I mean, I would be happily proven wrong. He did follow up with a blog post about the United Airlines incident with a passenger who was manhandled when he was being removed from the plane. I'm sure everyone's heard of this or if they haven't be easy to find out about. And George made a post commentating on that. And it's just funny because on the Harry Potter podcast I host, we have been recently talking about 
J.K. Rowling's comments on a lot of these kinds of things and her use of Twitter and social media. It's just funny that now kind of having the same conversation about George, but in a lot smaller way. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, you, you never know what's going what hap- to happen. You know, George has said that he thinks he's going to get the book out this year with the big caveat that George is not always the most accurate when it comes to predicting when his next book is going to come out. But, you know, it did get people kind of excited when you start piecing either evidence or straws together to just be like, oh, well, you know, George said he's going to get the book out. He's tweeting now. There's some sort of social media campaign, even though there may or may not be. It might just be George just screwing around on Twitter, on social media. He really took our Caught of Thrones thunder today when we announced Sam Coleman and Amy I Richardson. <laughs> I know. That's, I mean, that's it's fair, of though. all people to take our thunder, I think yeah, no, that I he's allowed to. We'll have to see what happens. Yeah. Well, one thing that has happened is uh, we changed our Game of Owns Twitter photo to that picture of George R. R. Martin. We did. So <laughs> it's uh, pretty, every time I look at our Twitter, I just laugh a little bit. So it's perfect. Thank you, George. Oh, yeah, for the there content. it is. I didn't even realize that until I'm just looking yeah. at it right now. It's a bit weird, That's but awesome. I think it needs to stay that way for a little bit. <laughs> I want I wanted to stay that way like just a little bit too long. Mm-hmm. You know, just like a little bit too past the time when people are talking about it. So for everyone listening, and this is mostly for Jeff, we need to get past John Five. So no, you, you can talk at length about Tyrion Six because this has been a long time coming. I just want to say that I thought it was so fun, and there are there are many different places to start. I know this is a pretty rough transition, but I'm sitting on the floor in a closet right now, so <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Using a borrowed <laughs> microphone, so let's just do this old, the old school way. This chapter had several ebbs and flows, but my favorite moment was just the kind of the cascade of emotion when people started to realize that they were all in it together at Molestown, and it felt a lot like hard home, minus more leadership, more of just like one opposing leader, and the rest being people, and more Brothers of the Night's Watch looking on, but I saw where the showrunners took the idea, like the kernel that George had planted and used it in a different way, and just on top of that and everything else, I thought that... This is one of those chapters of Jon Snow where I think maybe some folks would probably see this as something that could be almost thematically removed because it strengthens our suspicions of how things are going to eventually go in the future with him and his men. It's It almost feels like Sansa and Hawking at King's Landing. Mm-hmm. Am, am I wrong here? Like, do you guys get what I'm saying? No, I mean, I think I totally agree with you in the sense of, well... I don't know if this is agreeing with you or not. But <laughs> I don't really know I what I'm saying, to be like, honest. <laughs> I felt like this chapter, I don't want to dismiss this chapter completely out of hand because I think that that's unfair. But the two, the three big things that I got out of this chapter, I think we can summarize fairly quickly are, one, the situation is fairly dire um, and we need to figure out how to feed these people, how to rally these people and everything at the wall is still the worst. Two, that John is creating friction with people uh, at the wall. And I'm thinking about uh, like Bowen Marsh telling him not to ride south. And then three, that John is just a really great leader. You know, when he's he's rallying the wildlings, the free folk at the end of the chapter, like you you mentioned at Molestown. So, I mean, there's nothing extraordinary happened in this chapter, which is fine, but it would just kind of pass quickly. And it's like all these things that we already know and understand um, and that we'll continue to know and understand were revisited in this chapter. So let's move on to Tyrion. <laughs> but now there's so but much really. there's so much more to this John chapter too. It so this chapter's not amazingly action packed like some John chapters can be. Um but it's a huge 
there's a huge number of character moments and it really well it really sets John's conflict up with his fellow Night's Watchmen extraordinarily well. Yeah. This is the chapter that does it. It really does. Yeah. Um, there's kind of two major conflicts going on here. You have John knowing that he needs to have the wall manned. And then you also have the Night's Watchmen that John is with saying, hey, John, you know, you can't man the the wall with with wildlings because right as far as John knows right now, Tormund Giantsbane has not come south of the wall. The Weeper is still out north of the wall as well. And they could, both of them could come back in force and try to take the wall by force, by force of arms. And if you man the wall with a bunch of wildlings, where is their loyalty actually going to lie? Mm-hmm. Um, John makes this point. It's kind of an arrogant point when you think about it. He makes this point that, well, Melisandre just coerced the loyalty of these wildlings and forced them to swear to Rallor, um and to swear to Stannis. But I have a better plan. I'm going to like use food as my as my way of of, um, of bringing them to to my cause. But the problem is, it's what think about it this way from a personal level. If you're a wildling and you have your family, your friends, your kin, your clan, you know your people group that you've associated with that you've marched down to the wall with previously that come up to the wall. I don't think that food is necessarily going to be the thing that's going to keep them loyal to the Night's Watch. I think they're end up going to end up stab stabbing a lot of these Night's Watchmen in the back in order to let their friends and family and countrymen through the through the wall itself. Well, and there isn't a lot of food anyway. So even if that was something that could be more of a sway than than we're saying, it's gonna it's gonna run out and it's gonna run out sooner rather than later. So do you guys think that the plans later with Tycho are kind of just folly? You don't think that that a lot of food would be enough for what's happening? It's not folly. It, it's it's really good, but it's in, it, like John basically lucks himself into a solution. Like John didn't have anything to do with Tycho Nestorius right. coming to the wall. All John did was he started was basically being there and kind of lucking his way into into success because he doesn't actually have a long term plan to deal with the shortage of food that feeding all of these wildlings is going to cause. Now eventually he has a plan because. The Bravosi banker provides one, but it's not something that he's actually thinking through at this juncture in the narrative. And that's kind of a it's kind of a really kind of a a thorny problem because John is right in that, you know, everyone has a common enemy. You have the others that are coming south, but, you know, he can't feed all of these people for the long term. And man the wall at the same time. He has to do something, and his he chooses to bring sixty three people from sixty three wildlings up to the wall to man the wall. He splits them up, which is smart. But then you know, when his steward says, you know, this is not a great idea. Like in the long term, like we we're going to have more mouths to feed. We're also going to have you know the loyalty of these people, the politics of managing them, and then the, the other part too, which is. The part of what sets makes it a great character chapter, in my opinion, is the way that John interacts with Bowen Marsh. If you look at the way that John is talking with the wildlings, he's listening to their concerns, he's addressing them, he's asking questions of them, he's trying to win them over to his cause. But when he interacts with Bowen Marsh, what he comes across as, he comes across as incredibly arrogant, and he just tells Bowen Marsh, this is the way we're going to do things. 
you know, your concerns are noted, you know, but we're still going to, I'm the Lord commander and you're going to follow what I say. And that's really helps set up John's eventual downfall because, you know, Bowen Marsh, given his faults and he has a lot of faults, he's not a perfect guy. Um, you know, in a storm of swords, he was trying to bring, um, trying to put Janice Lint into the Lord commander position in order to, um, bring more men up from Tywin Lannister because Tywin Lannister promised, um, the watch that he would send more men to him. So he's, he's, he's a compromised, not a great dude, but he's also a guy who's been on the wall for years. He knows the North. He knows beyond the wall. He knows the provision, the provisions and the logistics issues that the Night's Watch has. And John just kind of just bull rushes him essentially and just tells him like, this is the way it's going to be. And, you know, it's time to salute, settle up and follow me. Yeah. And then this chapter does a good job of humanizing their relationship and the relationship that the Night's Watch has with the wildlings, even some someone like the new Magnar and their speech, their clashing of horns, and then his eventual exit, how they go down into the tunnels of a place where people used to live that used to interact with the men of the Night's Watch before it was torched by them. Just the humility in their existence surrounding each other. This chapter to me felt like almost like as readers, we were given a choice to understand how it's just going to be here from this moment forward. Like we spent so long being scared of the wildlings and then eventually realizing that they could be fought and then some of them failed and then Stannis came and they joined our side. And this was like the pivot for me when I read it for the first time uh, where it just felt like I, I understand why they didn't adapt something like this, but I also understood why it was so important to put into the story like this because it shows so much about John's leadership and it shows so much of his management of both sides at one time. In our reading order, these two chapters fell naturally together. So this was by George's grand design. But did you feel when Tyrion was going off on a nice long tangent about Daenerys? And I know that we're going to get into that when we move past the John chapter. But did you feel when Daenerys, when Tyrion's going off on his tangent about Daenerys, that John? Kind of because I read the John chapter first and I'm reading the, the Tyrion stuff and I was thinking about it. I was like, John is John is managing. He's doing the same thing. He's managing his own people. He's not dealing with slavery, but he is dealing with his own merging of two different classes and dealing with the conflict of people coming into their walls. And he's not dealing with plague but he's dealing with hunger in his own way. You see what I'm saying? How they're kind of mirroring each other and the management and how Daenerys has to kind of bite the bullet and say no to something that she would like to say yes to that hurts other people. John is kind of in that same position here and how those crazy rumors about Daenerys are so big uh, in that Tyrion chapter that we're about to talk about. I feel like the same thing could be said for John and the people that aren't talking to him right now in the crowd that are like extras in the very back. They must think that this guy's a real asshole because he's not feeding them well enough, mm -hmm. you know? Or even think about people who are outside of the wall. You know, can you believe that wildlings are now the ones that are keeping living in Molestown after they yeah, burned it know, down? I think that John and, and Danny's storylines paralleling each other is just continuing to be more apparent and more prevalent. It's cool too because in the reading order that, that you guys, we've all kind of come up with, the you you see p two people who are trying to rule well. I mean, as much as I think that John doesn't communicate 
well enough in order to be the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. I think his heart is in the right place, and I think he's trying to do the right thing. And the same thing goes for Daenerys as well. You know, she's in a tough situation where she wants to go to Westeros, but she's determined that she has to learn how to rule in Marine. And she has to make all of these compromises and try to negotiate with people that she really doesn't want to negotiate with. And the same goes for John. But then you have a th- another contrast, too, which is in the character of Cersei Lannister in A Feast for Crows, where Cersei's method of rule is not noble. It's not for the well-being of the many. It's for the well-being of Cersei Lannister herself. And I think that's really cool is that when you're able to see those kind of parallels between um, the three different types of ruler rulers in these chapters, both in A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. So do you think it comes down to that trifecta then? Because it was pretty loudly shouted later on in the Tyrion chapter, basically being the North, whatever shakes out there, Daenerys, and whatever shakes out between her and Fagon <laughs> and Cersei and whatever's going on there. Do you see that as three? And do you see a possible fourth as like the Euron? environment or where do you stand oh, with yes. all that? I, I see, yeah, you're on coming in. Um, and, you know, we did the, uh, the last time I was on with you guys, we did the, uh, the drowned man chapter where you're on his crowned king of, right. uh, of, of salt and iron. Um, and that's another parallel too. you know, Cersei is extremely self-focused um, and selfish and doesn't have the better interests of her people at heart. And Euron Greyjoy is, is a level of malevolence above Cersei. You know, Cersei's kind of a small evil. Euron Greyjoy is a really big deal and a really big evil character. And the way that he rules and manipulates people, he, he's playing five-dimensional chess in terms of politics, and he's playing it for the ill cause of, of Westeros and for his people. You know, even for people that you would normally, in a, in a normal family environment, his brothers, his his niece, his nephew, he doesn't have a care, a care or concern for them. He's their pawns for him, their playthings for him. And in that way, you know, Euron is is ex- much, much worse than than even Cersei. And even, you know, even Ramsey, since you guys talked about Reek last last time around. If if those are kind of the the points that we should be looking at where does the drama that's unfolding in the East that we pick up on so much in the Cherry Age? I realize that we're kind of all over the place, but I'm curious, like, do you, do you see that unfolding in a way that is representative and, you know, the, the lead points that are clashing the, the way the plot unfolds in the series, or do you see that as something that's going to kind of fall off to the side? The, the conflict between how the different rulers end up, unfolding out we've as they got go the forward. Triarchs. We've got uh-huh. we, we've got Selhoris, we've got Yunkai, we've got Astropor, we've got Karth. Everyone wants to get involved with what's happening. Right. So, you know, George has said that, you know, the story of A Song of Ice and Fire is is Westeros. And for the for the most part that's true. In A Dance with Dragons, though, he does put a lot of emphasis and focus on Essos. And you know, I really enjoyed the Volantis politics and the different cultural things about Volantis and how the Yunkish are trying to purchase the uh, services of, of Volantis and trying to bring them into um, their war with Marine. Um, all this stuff is really interesting, but in the end, it's probably just a sideshow, but it's an important sideshow. And we could talk about it more you know, at the end of the chapter or whatnot, why Volantis is probably going to play a very significant role in not just in a Dance of Dragons, because it does play a huge role in dance, but in the Winds of Winter too, where it's I think it's going to be one of the pivotal 
locations in in the winds of winter as well i just realized we just got sidetracked off of the john <laughs> chapter <laughs> i'm just sitting here enjoying <laughs> i don't have anything can i just point out one thing john snow there's a, a sentence from the from the chapter it says he did take long claw though and ghost followed at his heels that's him walking through the yard of castle black you know it's 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 cool too like the journey that john takes out to the wildling camp because he sees that the wildlings have carved a face into one of the trees which is really cool to me because, you know, in, in John 3, Melisandre makes this big spectacle of burning Mance Raider, quote unquote Mance Raider, and then taking um, the loyalty of the wildlings by by force, basically, by saying, like, you can either choose the sword or you could, you could choose to swear to Stannis or you can starve, you know, north of the wall and become a white or, and die because there's no food. But, you know, the wildlings are smart. I mean, they're not dumb. They know that... All they have to do is just, you know, pretend to swear their oaths and then, you know, go about living their own lives the way they actually want to live in. So they bring their own gods south of the wall and they carve, you know, faces into the trees, which is really cool because culture endures in the in among the wildlings. And that's a cool way of the wildlings basically defying, you know, someone saying, you know, it's either the it's either starvation or relore. We're you know, still right, here. We'll, we'll, yeah, we're still here. We'll swear to relore and then we'll carve faces, our faces of our gods into the trees because you know, what's, what's that, that phrase that, uh, that Jamie says back in a storm of swords, something about like no oaths that are sworn on, on, at sword point are really, are really worth anything. Well, I mean, the wildlings are putting that into practice here. They're saying, you know, my oath to Berlore is, is worthless because I was basically forced to swear it. It wasn't on my own free volition and, and free will. So I'm going to carve the faces of my gods at the trees and worship the old gods the way I'm supposed to worship the old gods. Cause that's my choice. And mm-hmm. that's great. Well, and as John says, as he's as they ride past that first tree, he says, men do not give up their gods so easily, and especially the wildlings. Yeah, they're free folk. You know, they're they're not they're different from the other characters and the other peoples that are in Westeros. They they live by their own code and they don't have some commonality where they have to. But if the Lord says they go left, they turn left. And if the Lord says says they go right, they turn right. They they, they choose their own path. Did you guys get any sons of the harpy vibe from almost the i don't want to think of it as sort of like imagery from a rebellion but it felt it very much to me it felt like subversive the small group representing themselves outwardly when they're like you said put at sort of point basically to make a vow yeah i mean they're not gonna you know daenerys and marine can she can torch marine very easily right she can go through and burn her way to the loyalty of the survivors. But in the long term, that doesn't create peace. In the long term, it creates more chaos, resentment, and anger that builds to the next generation until you have another war someday down the road. And then John is seeing the same thing where he can't he can't have his the Night's Watchmen basically kill their way to peace. They actually have to negotiate and work with people that they really don't want to work with. Um, you, and talk about this chapter, I was talking with a friend, um, and I said, cause my background is, is, is I was in the military, I was in the military. And I said, if you think about it, you know, the Night's Watch are basically these guys who have spent their entire lives fighting against the wildlings. And then suddenly they have to make peace and they have to work lo- alongside of them. It's basically saying to a U.S. Army soldier, you know, you have been fighting against ISIS for the past three or four years, but now that you're they're your allies, you have to work alongside of them. The aliens are here. The aliens are here, right. 
but it's 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 hard. And I mean, you know, not to like harp on this point, but you know, Bowen Marsh, you know, he was wounded fighting the Wildlings in a Storm of Swords. Right. He doesn't. He's not just this racist guy who's like, you know, screw the Wildlings. I don't like them. I don't like the way they smell. He's a guy who's actually fought against these guys, so he has real experience. You know, taking wounds and fighting on behalf of the Watch in defense of the realm. And John's saying, you guys got to work together. That's almost impossible to do. But John, you know, kind of to his credit, he does forge some bonds in this chapter between the two groups of the Watch and the Wildlings. I think that John does the best that he can in his little... He there's this moment when he he remembers a conversation he had with with Val um, before about how all men how they're basically the same no matter what side of the wall they came from which I think if there's anybody who's going to be able to impart that onto the Night's Watch it's going to be him having spent so much time with them but I think that in this chapter especially and I don't know if it's just because of the state of mind I am when I was reading today but um, I just really felt how much of a conflict it is as as exactly like you're saying Jeff the fact that they're being asked to work alongside these people who they've spent their life and their upbringing to be fighting against and kind of the weight of what that felt like just to me was really prevalent in this chapter more so than I think I really spend a lot of time thinking about it because I I know that I don't ever really get that feeling quite as much from the show as we do when we're reading through the story this way um and so I mean, if anybody's going to be able to rally them together, I think it's obviously going to be John. But, um, you know, you don't blame these guys for it's like you're saying they're not racist or anything. Um, it's just kind of the the nature of what they've spent their life doing and then kind of what they've pledged their life to in a very serious way. It's all of their leftover prejudice. It is. It's hard. Um. Shoot, I had a point. I just oh, so it's interesting that John is really the only person who can really bring everyone together, and the reason why is because he's been in both cultures. You know, he's raised in the North, a alleged bastard son of Ned Stark. So he knows the North. He knows some about leadership from observing his his father, quote unquote. But he's also a Night's Watchman too. He's he served as Jor uh, J R Mormont's squire. And then he deserts to the wildlings. So he's been in both camps. And so he's very culturally aware of what the wildlings are like. But he also has the institutional knowledge of what the Night's Watch is like, too. So really, you know, John is well placed to be the unifying factor between the two sides. The problem is that sometimes the way that he goes about convincing people to do something that they don't want to do doesn't necessarily um, uh, work. Um it, the end of the chapter is, is interesting because the conversation is about uh, between Bowen and John is about how uh, Bowen thinks that if Tormund comes, that the Wildlings would turn on the watch. And John says, you know, we will have lost a man, but we have gained 63. You're good at counting, my lord. Correct me if I'm wrong, but my reckoning leaves us 62 ahead. So it's kind of that kind of high-handed way that John talks with Bowen is really alienating, really, if you think about it. If someone talked to you like that, if someone talked to me like that, I'd be like, fuck that guy. Right. I don't want to like deal with this guy. This guy's just an arrogant prick, even though he might be right. 
Like he's like that guy that's always right, but you mm-hmm. really hate the way that he's right, and it really aggravates you how right yeah. he is. And and John, man, part of being right is knowing how to handle being right. So don't get mad at Bowen Marsh for not knowing your style. It's your job as the leader of the Night's Watch to make them want to follow your style, bud. So don't get stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, don't nothing we could do about that. By several of them. But it's it's cool because this chapter provides a foundation for John stabbing, you know, at the end of the book. And, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, is that Bowen disagrees with his Lord Commander, but he still is supporting him. He actually is bringing the food out to them and transporting the wildlings back to the wall that want to serve in the Night's Watch. That's because he's a good subordinate. But you can see the aggravation underlying what Bowen is doing and trying to interact with his Lord Commander and seeing that his Lord Commander is not taking his concerns seriously. And that's going to have consequences down the road for John. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't take back what I said at the beginning of this chapter, but I do think that, as you're saying, we need to lay these foundations in order for what happens to John. We can under We can understand that's a little bit more well-rounded. Can I go back to something? Because I totally forgot about this line as we're talking about this idea that John is the only one who's able to really bring these two sides together. And John makes a comment in this chapter where he goes, I would feel the same if someone asked me to make common cause with the Lannisters, which I think is a really, really great insight and line that I don't want to miss as we're having that conversation. That's a great line. It's it's really awesome the way that John recognizes what he's asking his his fellow Night's Watchmen to do. I know that neither of these chapters had any true action sequences, but one of my early notes on this Tyrion chapter, apart from the first paragraph, because he kind of came out swinging, George did, uh, going into this, following what happened with Tyrion and the sorrows. But for some reason, without action, it felt really action-packed the way that the dialogue was shuffling back and forth and knowing what we just came out of. I thought it almost felt like a really good, it almost felt like episode 10, Hannah, after Baylor. It almost felt like mm-hmm. Fire and Blood after the ninth episode. It almost felt like the 10th episode after the ninth episode of a normal season where something big happened. And yet, while this isn't like the moment that he got attacked by Stonemen, I felt like what was happening in this chapter with Tyrion was the real stuff that they would have jammed into a finale, like him coming face to face with young Griff and, and giving him the kind of advice that he would want to give when no one was around, you know, and talking about the hard stuff that he'd like to talk about when no one was around. I felt like we got a lot of payoff in this chapter. And I, I have a feeling that's why you're here today to talk about it with this, Jeff. Yeah. So great point you bring up uh, because Martin has indicated in the past that had he published a dance of dragons without doing the split between a feast for crows and a dance with dragons, Tyrion's chapter would have ended here in Volantis at this this juncture. And so you do see a lot of those cascading um, impacts on Tyrion, where Tyrion, Tyrion's every conversation that Tyrion has is very, very consequential to the overall narrative in A Song of Ice and Fire. And there's so many great things that come up here. I'm, just to list out just a couple things, you know, you have the Dothraki who are suddenly outside mm-hmm. of Volantis with a huge Kalasar. You have Volantis in an uproar where you have the Triarchs wanting to go to war with Daenerys, but then you have the population 
believing that Daenerys Targaryen is Azora High Reborn. And no big if they deal. go to war, yeah, no big deal, right? So you have the political class saying we're going to go to war with Daenerys and you have the political underclass saying, uh, no. <laughs> we don't want to spend eternity suffering. We're going to fight with Azora High. Right. We're on the side of, of, of the gods, you know, and you're you're fighting against our savior. Um, but then you have these really... The, the, the Cyvast game between Tyrion and Aegon is one of the most interesting ways that Martin has ever communicated a monumental shift in the narrative, where it's basically like the narrative goes completely sideways in both a plot direction, a direction in the way they're actually going to move, but also in the direction that Tyrion is going, because it's the culmination of his arc where you have this really nihilistic, suicidal depressed dwarf and it culminates here where Tyrion just manipulates this kid to invade Westeros on his own without support and you don't really know why and the, maybe the reason why you don't know why is because Tyrion just doesn't give a shit anymore he's done yeah. with I'm so excited this. to talk about this stuff <laughs> well Tyrion is so very much I feel like this is him at his absolute worst and I know we, we've seen his decline and we've seen the fallout through all of A Dance of Dragons but I feel like this here in this chapter is him at his absolute lowest point. Um, as we're saying, while he's having this game here and kind of convincing um, Aegon to go and invade Westeros. And then also later you see him in the brothel. Um, and that's also not one of his finer moments. And so um, absolutely like Tyrion at his lowest here in this chapter. And it was a shame because there were certain points along the way in, in this chapter, the multiple things that he was doing and the multiple games of Cybass and the multiple conversations that he stood out as the prominent person that, well, it's like, yeah, I mean, it, let's say Aegon's not fake. Like this would be the sortie that he sends out to have a secret conversation with the tradesmen to get information like who better to send than Tyrion he is so unbelievably skilled at getting exactly what they need when they leave to do stuff he is but that's the worst part about him about sending Tyrion out at this juncture because they think that Tyrion is still the same guy who was in King's Landing that right ran an excellent political game as the hand of the king but that character's not there anymore Tyrion had faults in the first three books, he did a lot of bad things in those books too, but he wasn't this completely nihilistic character. So Tyrion is smart and that has never left him, but he's using his smarts for, you know, the ill of the people that he's around. Exactly. So to you, there's no redemptive qualities of Tyrion giving that strong of advice, that particular advice to young Aegon. Well, it's so it's it's interesting because you have to like go all the way back to the start of that conversation, um, in the start of the game, because essentially Tyrion says, Prince Aegon said Tyrion, since we're both stuck aboard this boat, perhaps you will honor me with a game of Savas to while away the hours. The prince gave him a wary look, I am sick of Savas. Sick of losing to a dwarf, you mean? That pricked the lad's pride just as Tyrion had known it would. So already <laughs> the framing of it is that Tyrion is basically already starting the manipulation of Aegon. Um, and that sets the tone for the entire conversation that Tyrion is about to have with Aegon himself. So why are we mad that we don't have a Baelish chapter? Basically what this is, right? This is what he would do. It is. It's extremely what, you know, Littlefinger would do. It's it's very Littlefinger moves that Tyrion makes where he 
is manipulating the person that he's speaking with to come to the conclusion and the quote unquote realization that Baelish would want the person to come to. Ned Stark was supposed to find out about the bastardy of Cersei's children. He Littlefinger knew about the bastardy of Cersei's children, but he never came out and said it. He let Ned come to the conclusion. And Tyrion does the same thing here with Aegon. But Tyrion doesn't have a master plan. He's just fiddling with them. And no, Tyrion's he, not necessarily yeah. wrong. That's my question is, is what do we think about what the advice that Tyrion's giving or kind of the the steps he's putting Aegon through? Like, like you know, does do we think that there's some truth behind what he's saying? Because I, I, I do, but I don't, I don't know what your take is on that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. A, a, Tyrion defines Daenerys Targaryen the best of any book or passage that you can find on on Which is kind of crazy. Absolutely. But, you know, is was it a Littlefinger line or was it a Vara's line where it says the best lies are spiced with truth? Mm-hmm. Is that an Illyrio line? I can't remember which one it or is now. Or was it a George R. R. Martin line? Or was it a George R. R. Martin line? That too. <laughs> probably, you know, Tyrion uses, you know, truths that are, are very prescient about Daenerys her upbringing and what she's actually like and how Aegon can't like, what is Aegon's, what is Aegon to Daenerys? She has a small army. He's claiming to be her nephew. And that's really it. And Tyrion says, look, Daenerys was, you know, raised in exile, fleeing from assassins her entire life, married to a Dothraki call. And, you know, had spent time in the Dothraki sea, had conquered Marine and Slaver's Bay. You know what? What does that actually matter to her that you're going to bring a small army to her side and claim to be her family and kin? It's it's really not going to matter a whole lot to her. And and really, if if you look at Danny's chapters, I don't see where Aegon would really have much of a a chance with with Danny. You exactly. Know, Danny has her own issues that she's dealing with. Aegon would be an outsider coming in, as you know. You might find out with Quentin later on what happens with Quentin when he tries to present himself as Danny's potential match. Yeah, that's what I was thinking this whole time. Is we've already got and well, not we already as having finished this understand what somebody in this same position presenting themselves to Danny how that turns out, and so. I think that I mean I think that there's truth behind this idea that he can't just roll up there and expect to win her over without some sort of Tyrion describes it as if he holds Westeros and he'll be a rebel. Um, and I mean I think that there's truth to that. Absolutely, there was truth, and there was just a, there was a lot of him saying what someone. Aegon's age would want to hear about gallantry and heroic oh, yeah. heroism, and it appealed to his senses and it appealed to what he thought would appeal to Daenerys. But also, it was just good advice because, at the end of the day, what Tyrion really should have been telling him was this whole thing is probably the way that we're doing this is not optimal right now. He could have he could have reset the button and like and changed things. But I think his advice to Aegon, this is as close as he could have gotten as to a reset without com- without completely changing everything. So I thought the first time that I read it and it, you know it's just it's difficult for me to get to pull the bad feelings out of it that, that you guys seem to have so obviously picked up on. And it's not that you're wrong. It's just that George does such a good job of making us like Tyrion that I kind of just, I kind of just look past it when he's clearly being the worst. These days you can get practically everything on demand, like Game of Bones. You can listen whenever it's convenient to you. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours? 
when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com. Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right now from your desk with Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, Stamps.com never closes, so you can get postage whenever you need it, 24-7. I can't say enough how valuable it's become to not make a trip to the post office for every package or letter that I need to send. Instead of going to the post office, you can weigh, pack, print, and ship your own package without leaving the house. Right now, use our code OWNS for this special offer. You get a four-week trial that includes postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type OWNS. That's stamps.com and your code OWNS, O-W-N-S. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. And we'd like to thank Sunbasket for supporting today's episode. A huge part of eating healthy is just finding the time to do it. Taking the time to plan your meals, trek to the farmer's market, figure out portions, it all adds up. And if you're like me and don't have all that time, you'll love Sunbasket. Sunbasket delivers delicious, healthy recipes and fresh ingredients straight to your door. Get dinner on the table in 30 minutes. It's healthy cooking made easy. You'll get organic, non-GMO ingredients from the best farms and fishermen. Also, everything is seasonal and sustainably sourced. Important to note, Sunbasket offers paleo, gluten-free, vegetarian breakfast, and family options created by an award-winning chef and approved by nutritionists. Each meal comes with pre-measured fresh ingredients and easy-to-follow directions, and it's delicious. It's time in the kitchen well spent. So, for listeners of the podcast, you should go to sunbasket.com slash owns today and get your first three meals free, free. That's sunbasket.com slash owns to get three healthy, easy to prepare meals free. That's sunbasket.com slash O-W-N-S. I do want to talk about his description of Cersei and kind of what things are like in King's Landing right now, because I, I do think that, you know, imagine anybody, whether it's this scenario he's playing out um, for Aegon, or if it's later in the future when we get somebody actually coming in to invade Westeros and King's Landing. I mean, there's so much truth behind the fact that Cersei is the only one left there and that she is just slowly but surely destroying and unwinding all the alliances that Tywin has created, pushing everybody out of her out of favor with her and really is just kind of lone in her madness as she I feel like Tyrion listened to our episode last week and then talked about Cersei. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Maybe, but I mean, it's so true in the sense of if there has ever been a moment where King's Landing ha- is more ripe for t- the taking, uh, this is going to be it because it's it's all being very much held together by a small thread. It is, although it's... I would say it's more like a shirt than a thread that's kind of has a bunch of holes in it right now because you have you have the reach still siding with you have the the Tyrells still siding with the Lannisters and they have a really large army and not to discount what Tyrion is saying because he's right that Cersei is an incompetent person who is going to bind up the wounds of Westeros was bind up the wounds with Westeros with salt He's still telling Aegon, hey, take your army and invade Westeros. Take your 10,000 dudes, land in Westeros, and just hold a position there against 100,000 soldiers from the Reach, 20 to 30,000 soldiers <laughs> from the Westerlands. <laughs> Can you see? I mean, like, where, like, he's, he's saying, 
he's saying the right things, but he's he's leaving key information out. He's not. He, he's there intentionally. There are a lot of knights in Westeros. There are lots of knights in Westeros, and you can be you can have the greatest ten thousand man army possible, but you would still be a fifteen or a ten to one underdog against the standing armies that are already in the field in Westeros right now. But his advice about people loving him because he's possibly a Targaryen, or let's just say because he's a Targaryen, you know, that's not, that's not incorrect because he is right. If there's any time, Robert's dead, Joffrey's dead, two great leaders gone. What better time to come in? Did you just call Joffrey a great leader? (laughs) He's right in that, in that Aegon could come into that, position but here's what Tyrion is leaving out so Tyrion is consciously modeling his talk to Aegon off of what Aegon the Conqueror did you know he Aegon the Conqueror landed in Westeros with only a few thousand guys mm-hmm. right but Aegon the Conqueror had three huge force multipliers and dragons him and his sisters. and he kept them close to him he kept them close to him one of the interesting subtexts of this whole conversation is that Tyrion is not only manipulating Aegon to do this really foolhardy thing and invade Westeros without Daenerys and her dragons, but he's also winning the game of, of Savas against Aegon, and he's doing it because what was the first thing he said? It's like, oh, I wouldn't move my dragon out r- first to start out with. That's kind of a bold and rash move. You don't want to like use your dragon up too quickly. And he ends up just screwing like this guy later on. I mean, like, I don't know if you guys ever played you know, an Xbox game or a game, a board game that you're not familiar with. And you have this guy that you're playing with who's much more experienced that just manipulates you to make all the bad and the wrong moves so that the more experienced guy ends up winning the game. It's like when you know the map, right? You just, you know what they're going to do because you've done it. You feel what they're going to do. And so you, you basically lay traps for them cognitively. You do. And that's what Tyrion does. He manipulates Aegon um, but it's also telegraphing the the issues with what Tyrion is telling Aegon. Because what, what does he say at the very end of the conversation? Um, I hope your grace will pardon me. Your king is trapped. Death and far. Death and four. The prince stared at the playing board. My dragon is too far away to save you. You should have moved her to the center of the battle. But you said, I lied. Trust no one and keep your dragon close. So he's... Tyrion is telling Aegon, go to Westeros without a dragon. And then he's basically winking and saying, oh, that's a really bad move not to <laughs> take your dragon with you to Westeros. You know what that reminded me of? Uh, Arya's dancing lessons with Sirio in the beginning where sh- he says he's going to move one way and then he moves the other. And yeah. Arya's like, that's not fair. You said you were going left. It's kind of the same it was reminiscent to me of that same type of conversation. That's such a good connection. It's it basically is. the same it's a great lesson. connection. I never picked up on that, but that's a really great connection. That's what happens when you rewatch the throne mm-hmm. while you're recording goo. I was going like, to say, thank you. <laughs> rewatch so the throne. Much <laughs> are you guys homework. up to that episode or near that episode? We just finished season one. So okay. yeah, the finale goes up that this makes week. Sense. So trucking through that. But, uh, but then, you know, Aegon gets pissed off because rightfully, you know, Tyrion basically, practically cheated his way into winning the game and he kicks kicks the board over and then Tyrion says this has this really interesting thought it's only for a split second you might miss it if you don't if you aren't reading it kind of a little bit more carefully but he says you know young griff jerk young griff jerked to his feet and kicked over the board savas pieces flew in in all directions bouncing and rolling across the deck of the shy maid 
pick those up, the boy commanded. And then Tyrion thinks, he may well be a Targaryen after mm-hmm. all. I was going to ask you about that. What do you think? What do both of you guys think? He's, he's too much. I almost think he's too much of a Targaryen for Danny. You know what I mean? Like he has it, that same sort of fire in him that I think that she has. Well, I mean, you, you're right in that Aegon very much resembles like the kind of bold and brash Targaryen type character who does what he wants and yeah but you're not saying what you really think jeff is because we haven't we haven't gotten there yet and there's no better time than now okay so first we'll start with Aegon, and then we'll go to septa lamore oh gosh i have i have notes on septa lamore too <laughs> we'll open up that bag of okay so real or not real not real not real not he's, real he's not real okay okay so when Tyrion says he may well be a targaryen after all what martin is introducing here is doubt and he's introducing doubt in a really interesting way because what he's kind of saying through Tyrion is hey pay attention here Tyrion doesn't think that Aegon is a Targaryen at before this point and he's kind of winking and saying oh he may well be a Targaryen after all and you have to think back to a couple Tyrion chapters back where Tyrion and Illyrio are on the road to the Roin River and Tyrion is questioning Illyrio, and Illyrio is giving these very evasive, vague answers about why he's backing Aegon and why he's backing, or at that point, Aegon has been introduced, why he's backing Daenerys. And Tyrion starts to figure out that there's something more at work with what Illyrio is going after than simply becoming the master of coin, which is what Illyrio claims, or because he has some sort of great concern for Westeros. Because what is Illyrio's connection, actual connection to Westeros? Like, is, is there any connection that he has to Westeros, some sort of great overriding principle that he's really invested in in the country of Westeros? I don't yeah, really see one. He could be a one. lost Targaryen. He could be, actually. I, <laughs> I, think, I think he might be. Everyone's, I, I everyone's think a secret Targaryen. So in that context of that conversation back in Tyrion 2, they talk about the Black Fires and Illyrio makes this weird statement of red or black, a dragon is still a dragon sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's more interesting to me that Aegon is introduced late in A Dance of Dragons, and he's introduced in an interesting way of Illyrio suddenly saying, I'm backing this guy. You know, I'm this guy is suddenly Aegon, you know, the sixth Targaryen, the son of Rhaegar Targaryen, who miraculously survived. And there's weird things about the story, too. Like, for instance... Um, Aegon talks about the Pisswater Prince and his conversation with Tyrion. But that kind of assumes facts after the facts. It assumes facts after after they occurred. So Varys, in order to rescue this kid, has to assume that Tywin has come to King's Landing to sack King's Landing, something he doesn't know. So he rescues this kid, spirits him away from Westeros and then raises this kid as his own, whereas Varys doesn't have any real connection to Rhaegar. In fact, in A Storm of Swords, Jaime recounts how Varys was informing against Rhaegar and recruiting spies in order to find out what Rhaegar was actually doing against his father. So that motivation doesn't necessarily make sense. What makes better sense, in my opinion, is that Illyrio has a personal stake in Aegon and a stake that you find in history in the Blackfire claimants to the Iron Throne. And uh, I feel like I'm going to bore people, but it basically a bastard <laughs> branch of the, of the House Targaryen 
that fought a civil war against the Targaryens about 170 years before the start of the main series. Uh, they went into exile into Essos, and uh, apparently the the last male Blackfire died at the Stepstones when Barristan Selmy killed him um, in the War of the Nine Penny Kings. But they leave open the possibility that the female line has existed on since um, since that happened. And this is the kind of stuff that we talk about on the phone <laughs> <laughs> for hours. Well, so my question is then, and we're talking about this late introduction of young Griff, whoever we're going to believe that he is. What's the point, you know, and, and why does this matter? So here's why it matters. And this is going to get into wins of winter stuff. So beware. Um, it matters because it's setting up a conflict between Daenerys Targaryen and Aegon Targaryen in or Aegon Blackfire, whoever it actually is, mm -hmm. in the Winds of Winter. And that's really important because Daenerys has lived her whole life since the Game of Thrones believing that she is the last Targaryen. After her brother dies, when he's, he receives his crown of, of gold, she thinks she's the she's the last one. But if she comes to find out that her maybe nephew is in Westeros and is sitting the Iron Throne and has taken her seat on the Iron Throne, that adds a significant amount of conflict to Daenerys Targaryen going forward because she has to wonder, can I fight against my own blood? Right. My own kin? He's sitting on my seat. I've earned this and this kid just took everything that I've spent five books earning or six books earning whenever the winds winter drops. And he's taken it from me. He's, he's another usurper. He's the same as Robert Baratheon, but he's my maybe kin, maybe, maybe nephew. And I think that's the pivotal part and the important piece of why Aegon is in the narrative and why he's important. He's important because he's important in relation to Danny. Mm -hmm. Setting up to be a, like a true conflict and a, a true uh, force enemy enemy to 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 her story yeah well, so, so if you look if you look back at a clash of kings when daenerys has her house of the undying vision one of the things she sees is a cloth dragon amidst a cheering crowd and that's one of the lies that she has to slay in that prophecy itself that to me speaks of a conflict that daenerys is going to have with a false dragon, namely Aegon, that she has to slay and as one of the lies that she has to slay. Aegon being a Targaryen being the one of the lies that she has to slay. But it's, you know, it's it's interesting because what proof does Danny have that Aegon isn't real? What proof do I have? I mean, I, I'm making a lot of assumptions and putting some pieces together, but I don't think that George is going to basically do this game of Clue where it's, you know, Aegon is a black fire and here's like the evidence, the, you know, the, the DNA test that proves it, you know, you know, Bragar is not the father sort of thing. I think it'll be proven by the sequence of events. If Danny does have to face down this character, if he is a black fire, how poetic would it be to put a button on that conflict finally before the end? Especially if she does become a Zorhai, how do you definitive, definitively become a leader? You defeat all of your opponents. True. True. It's definitely going to be interesting. Um, and, and, you know, the funny thing is, is that, uh, and this is why Tyrion is such an asshole in this chapter and why he, he becomes that he'll come become that way in the Winds of Winter. Tyrion, when he arrives in, in Slaver's Bay, is the only person that knows about Aegon. He's the only person that 
has been in conversation with Aegon, and he can shape the narrative too. So when he encounters Daenerys Targaryen, you have to wonder, what is Tyrion actually going to tell Danny about Aegon? Mm-hmm. Is he going to set her up as the kind of the way he put it here? Is he going to be putting it that, you know, Aegon is establishing a foothold in Westeros, wow. you know, and awaiting you in order to marry you? Or is he going to be like, you know, this upstart, not Targaryen, who's definitely a Blackfire, has taken the Iron Throne out from under you? As sitting is sitting in your seat and has taken all the glory that you would have earned had you, you know, come had, had you arrived in Westeros first. That's really fascinating to me is how Tyrion is going to be able to manipulate the circumstances going forward. And it all comes back to this chapter and this Savas game here oh, on the board of this small ship sailing down so, the road. It's just so good. It's just so good. I feel bad for Danny, though. That rumor mill about her. Good God. I mean, I don't, I, I don't think I've ever heard. I don't I mean, know it was like, if we should feel that bad for her. Woe betide the lover who fails to satisfy her. She gives okay. her body to men to take their souls and thrall. That's just. You're right. But I, I felt like. I felt like hearing these rumors about Danny was a good way for us to put into context in a way that she probably hasn't put into context the repercussions of what she's done by freeing all the slaves. You know, I, I feel like it's a it's a great way to and I know we always say this, but to expand outside of this idea that she's um, freeing all these people, but it's actually having repercussions much farther oh, outside yeah. of her purview. Well, it's it's. One of the cool things about the Dance of Dragons is the uh, the nature of rumors and how they play a part in uh, and and shaping people's expectations and and forming opinions and and going on certain courses. Um, you know, what is is the rumor in this chapter that Daenerys bathes in blood and the blood of virgins and stuff like that? Is was that in this chapter? Or was that in the Quentin chapter? I can't remember. I can't remember. Honestly, the hyperbole in this chapter about Daenerys was just Bloodthirsty. ridiculous. Well, it's it's interesting because it. What the rumors, the effect they have is they dehumanize Daenerys to the people of Atlantis, or at least the political class of Atlantis. And so they think that, you know, she's this awful tyrant who kills, you know, people for fun, you know, sleeps with animals, does all of bathes in blood, all of these types of things dehumanize her and make war with her much more palpable or rather palatable to her. So that's, it's an interesting way that rumors and, and innuendo ends up making an impact on uh, on the policies of, of nations like Volantis. It's always my favorite part through as we kind of go through the stories to hear other people talking about other people. And I don't know if that's just because I love gossip by nature. <laughs> but <laughs> I do think that we get these really interesting insights into these characters that we spend a lot of time with from their points of view to have people who are removed from their current situation and, and out of their actual line of action to go through all these different rumors that they're hearing. I think it gives us an interesting perspective. Um, and I always enjoy these kind of like pieces of gossip that we get to pick up as we're traveling through all these different cities uh, within the world. And oh, yeah. I love learning about these locations and and feeling the environment. I know that I said earlier that this chapter was a little less environment, ambient heavy, more dialogue and action, but still George R. R. Martin, you know, went into what he should have and uh, it just felt good. It's a very satisfying chapter, even if it's a very uncomfortable chapter, uh, especially as we come 
towards the end of the chapter, which we're not quite there yet, but uh, it does make the world come very alive. Um, and, and I really like the way that he does that through, you know, a lot of the stuff that they're hearing is, it's not necessarily things that they're observing. Other people are telling them about like when Tyrion is with um, half Maester Howden and they go and speak to the, uh, the shipmaster Cavo, and they have all of these different, they hear all of these different things about what's going on in the world around them and how Cavo is kind of like, doesn't dismisses the Dothraki. They come, we give gifts, they go sort of thing, which is a really weird and discomforting thing to think about that this guy is saying to a, a 30,000 person Dothraki Kalasar, not a big deal. But, you know, that's his perspective and that's, it's an interesting <laughs> way that it goes about doing it. And I don't know if it's actually going to be true or not, that it's not going to be a big deal. This chapter actually was totally rewritten by George R. R. Martin in like 2007. Like the original chapter was supposed to be um, Tyrion with the Shrouded Lord, the uh, the leader of the uh, the Stonemen. Right. But uh, for whatever reason, Martin felt it didn't work and he rewrote the entire chapter into one single sequence of him of his father being the Shrouded Lord and shooting the crossbow at the uh, the Shrouded Lord. Wait a second. So he was going to write the chapter where Tyrion met with the Shrouded Lord? Uh, yeah. It was supposed wow. to be him meeting the Shrouded Lord. It's supposed to be this magical, spooky chapter. And then he thought it didn't work and he rewrote it. So it's just a dream sequence that opens the chapter. And that's all that it ends up being. But he has wow. this whole chapter somewhere in the archives that maybe someday we'll read. Of the of Tyrion with the Shrouded Lord, which is uh, interesting. That is really cool. Yeah. So another thing that I had a question about or that I wanted to touch on before we start wrapping up with Tyrion at the end of this chapter is Septa Lamore, because I know and it's a moment that we get in the beginning of the chapter. But I think that that's also a piece that there's a lot of questions left from and there, we don't have a lot of answers and there's a lot of ambiguity. Um, I think that throughout a Dance of Dragons, we're getting a lot of Tyrion's internal monologue of what's she here for, kind of who is she. And I think that because she's being brought up so much in his in internal monologue that we're eventually going to hopefully get those answers. But I don't know if you guys have any thoughts or theories or ideas on kind of who she might be and what part she's playing. I, I think that her identity is an interesting mystery in the narrative. And the reason why it's interesting to me, is that Tyrion can't figure it out. Right. Tyrion's figured out who Aegon and John Connington are. He's figured out that young Griff and Griff are actually, you know, Aegon the Sixth, allegedly, and and John Connington. But he has no idea. He can't really put a. Uh, he can't figure out Septa Lamore. And I think it's really interesting because. Tyrion is so, you know, smart and he's figuring these things out and these are puzzles for him to solve. And he's kind of drawing a blank on on Lamore. So mm -hmm. do you have ideas about who she might be or or anything? I mean, I have no idea. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> My ideas are all touched yeah. by you. Your your hands are all over them. Because we we talked right after I read, you know what I mean? Like we talked right after, so that's oh, yeah. that's where all. So you'd probably be best talking about that, but just in, but just in general, I I guess my my thought before we get too far into it is: Do you think that part of that cloudiness on Tyrion's behalf is caused by, or a lot of it 
is caused by the fact that she is a pretty lady and her sexuality uh, gets in the way of a lot of his thoughts. As you can see in this chapter alone, he has a lot of problems with uh, dealing with his urges and thoughts. And I think that just in general, he's, uh, you know, all of that, all of that kind of stuff is his his realm of weakness. Yeah, definitely. I think that he's Lamore um, beguiles him because that she's an attractive woman. Um, there are some hints that of, of to her identity, though, that you can see. Um, she might not have always been a septa. One of the things that Terry notices earlier is that she has stretch marks from from a pregnancy mm-hmm. in um, Tyrion Four, and there's something really interesting to about uh, Lamore in this chapter itself is when they arrive in Volantis. Uh, Tyrion notices that Lamor has changed into, he, he says, Lamor had changed out of her Septa's robes into garb more befitting the wife or daughter of a prosperous merchant. Tyrion watched her closely. He snipped out the truth beneath the blue, uh, between, beneath the dyed blue hair of Griff and young Griff easily enough. And Yandri and Isilla seemed to be no more than they claimed to be, whilst Duck was something less. Lamor, though, who is she really? Why is she here? Not for gold, I judge. What is this prince to her? Was she ever a true septa? So I think the merchant, the, the clothing is is interesting. I, I don't want to totally just come out and say what I what I think. Um, but I'll say a couple ideas that people have thrown around in, in the fandom. Some people think that she's a Shardane in disguise, that a Shardane never died, and that she fled into exile and is working alongside of this what she thinks is the son of Rhaegar Targaryen, which would make some thematic sense, right? Because, you know, the Dane, Arthur Dane was um, Rhaegar Targaryen's best friend. It would make sense that his sister would be working alongside of Rhaegar's son or what she thinks is Rhaegar's son. A um, couple other possibilities that are that are out there. Um, some people think that she's uh, Melora Hightower, who's a daughter of Leighton Hightower, the, the lore of, 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 um, of Old Town. I'm not sure that that's necessarily going to pan out. Um, I actually, to my actually thought is that I think that she's, and this is going to be a, a weird thought, but I think that she's actually Sarah Mopatis. Do you okay. guys remember her? She had great hands. She had great hands and great <laughs> Wonderful hands, hands too. Wonderful hands and great hands. One of the the the, the parts of this chapter that's interesting to me is that Lamora changed out of Receptus robes into garb more befitting the wife or daughter of a prosperous merchant. Um, who would be a more prosperous merchant than Illyrio Mopatis and robes that fit uh, Lamore could mean that, that it's that it's Sarah in disguise. And, and I'm not wed to the idea, but I think it's, it's an interesting possible um, explanation for why she's actually in this venture. Um, she's not here for gold. She's probably not really a true septa. She was pregnant at one point in time. Um, is it possible that, uh, and this is going back to the Blackfire discussion, that that uh, Le- that Sarah and Lamore are the same person, and that Sarah is actually the mother of of Aegon Targaryen? The plot thickens, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really explain that well at all, and I apologize. <laughs> but I feel like we've 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 talked about it so much. Those that information is out there, and there. Those theories, if you are listening and interested in the gruesome details, you can you can Google and look into it. And for the record, as far as Lamore is concerned, that's the most compelling argument that I have. If you need an argument, that's the most compelling one that I've found. 
Yeah. I'll take your guys' word for it. Uh, That's where I'm at. (laughs) Sure. We'll we'll find out what happens. You know, I'm looking forward to the unveiling of it. And you think that that the way it's all panning out, that we'll get answers to that kind of stuff and wins? I think we'll get evidence. I don't know about answers. And I think that's the way that George prefers some of these types of reveals. Um, I think we'll, it'll be very clear by wins that Jon Snow is the son of Rhaegar and and Lyanna. But will it be clear that Aegon is a Blackfire? Probably not. Will there be evidence evidence added to it? Final book conflict then. It it could be. I, I don't, I think the, that actually the Aegon Daenerys conflict will end up kicking off in the last book in the series. Um, Cause I think Danny has a long journey to make it back to Westeros before she can confront Aegon, which kind of sucks. Cause I'm, that's something I'm really looking forward to. We'll now use this opportunity for our good friend, the bear, the remaining bear of bear Island, Jor Mormont to move us into the final part of our episode, like he ushered Tyrion into the final part of the chapter very aggressively. Surprisingly, can't imagine what this would have been like to read it for the first time and not see in the show, Ingly. That was my question that I had, because I can't remember if... I can't remember the first time I read this if I understood who it was. I didn't get that it was Jorah... And until the, the next chapter where Tyrion right. comes out and says it. But then again, you know, the first time when I read something, I'm never the most perceptive of readers. It takes me several reads and several reading of, of fan theories to kind of come to like, oh, wait, maybe J- Ned isn't John's father. Maybe maybe Manderly baked some phrase into pie sort of thing. You know, take it, it, I'm not the person who definitely picks up on that stuff uh, immediately. And, I, and I, I think that most readers are kind of like that, too. Oh, I, th- I would think so, especially with... I mean, the, your first read through of A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, if you understand who Jorah is at all, your first read through, then <laughs> right, props right to you. <laughs> well, I had the advantage in that I had seen the first two seasons of Game of Thrones, so I knew who Jorah Mormon was because he was a very central figure in Danny's arc in the first two seasons. Right. Mm-hmm. But this, you know, the the lead up to Tyrion encountering encountering Jorah is one of the most disturbing passages that I, don't, I think that George has, has written. And that's kind of saying a lot because, you know, you guys just did a Reek chapter last week where Reek hears the screams of the dying Ironborn as as they're being flayed by Ramsay in the distance. Um, that's pretty awful. Um, but Tyrion, when he is... Um, piss drunk. He's piss drunk. He's nihilistic. He's angry. And he picks up a prostitute who speaks Westerosi. And... You know, it's one of those things that readers might not pick up on it the first time around, but, you know, there's no such thing as consent when it comes to a slave prostitute. They're forced into slavery. Consent doesn't exist. Tyrion doesn't give a shit about it. He's, he says, um, he he just wants to take her for his pleasure. And then after he's done for the first time having sex with her, he gets off of her and looks at her and she's just like this blank slate that has no emotion about what's going on. He thinks that mm-hmm. he was fucking a corpse. Yeah. And those that's from Tyrion's monologue. And then he throws up and does it again. Right. He throws up and he does it again, which is even worse. It's mm-hmm. so disturbing and so awful for... For Tyrion, it just shows how much that the character that we've loved since the star of the series has sunk the depths that he's sunk to. Mm-hmm. And it's really awful. I think it's so interesting uh, what he's saying 
through this whole experience of what he's thinking. He's thinking about Taisha, which is, of course, he's going to be thinking about that, which is um, an extra layer. And then this, what he's saying to her, um, she's kind of going off about, you can cut my head off and take it to King's Landing and you can become whoever you want and no one will ever whip you again. He's like, he's going on these crazy monologues. And and I just think that the whole thing just has this very like disturbing. That's what I'm saying about this Tyrion at his absolute lowest, I think is, is these last couple pages of this chapter because we just get, he's raping her essentially. And he's uh, just like spiraling into this mad monologue in his head and both out loud to to her it says he needed wine a lot of wine and these are paragraphs after paragraph and 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 it just seems almost rambly and a little a little fast almost a little dangerous he needed wine a lot of wine and he seized the flag with both hands and raised to his lips the wine ran red that sentence wasn't necessary but it was a thought in his head you know what i'm saying the wine ran red down his throat down his chin it dripped from his beard and soaked the feather bed in the candlelight it looked as dark as the wine that had poisoned joffrey when he was done, he tossed the empty flag aside and half rolled and half staggered to the floor, groping for a chamber pot. There was none to be found. His stomach heaved and he found himself on his knees, retching on the carpet, that wonderful thick mirrorish carpet, as comforting as lies. Yep. Yeah. What the, <laughs> the hell? I know. And after Jeez. he is already such in a dark place and, you know, how much of an issue he's had with wine up until this point and then to, to be just getting it everywhere and, and that line about it all like dribbling in his beard and it's just uh it's not a good scene at all for me what happened at the end of this chapter with jorah arriving this is a sign from the gods what more sobering of an individual of a traveling companion could you have than jorah mormont after daenerys is cast aside <laughs> you know what i mean like this is what Tyrion needed a real wake-up call just someone to smack him around and i don't know help him get somewhere i don't know if it's gonna work what do you guys think you know i i think it's it's um we've reached Tyrion at his lowest point in the narrative just from all five books this is even to me it's worse than having his nose cut off or being imprisoned for for a crime he didn't commit i agree this is him at his absolute lowest part of himself and he gets suicidal again he says you know i do not want to meet the shrouded lord Tyrion fumbled into his clothes again and groped his way to the stair. Griff will flay me. Well, why not? If ever a dwarf deserved a skinning, I'm him. Like, as much as this portion is horrific and shows Tyrion as an evil character who rapes a woman twice, that raw emotional feeling that Tyrion is is thinking is compelling, and it does show us the depth that Tyrion has fallen. And that's the turning point for Tyrion, because right after that, he loses footing, he falls down the steps, and he almost lands into the uh, the feet of Jorah Mormont himself. And I think that's the, to the be point taken that the to narrative the queen. turns. Yeah. yeah. So, it's, so Tyrion has made Aegon and John Connington and the band on, on the ship and the Golden Company has made their narrative go sideways. But meanwhile, Tyrion's own narrative is about to go completely sideways in a way that he didn't expect. And I think that's a cool way that Martin transitions transitions Tyrion from that low point. And maybe as you guys progress through, you know, 
a feast with dragons, maybe Tyrion will start to get a little bit better. Maybe he'll start to like recover a little bit of his old self. But, right. you know, well, that remains for you guys to discover as you progress through. Well, we've reached the end of our time with Tyrion for now. I think that we can talk about this chapter. And I think we could easily talk about this chapter for hours. Um, I think that like half of the theories and stuff that's written online about A Song of Ice and Fire is about this chapter. But for now, why don't we give our owns and our, our favorite moments? I'll give my own to Tyrion for taking advantage of some time with young Griff without big Griff around and giving us a really awesome passage in the story and hyping up Daenerys more than anyone else has so far, even more than Aemon did in A Feast for Crows. Oh, yeah. I, I would say that my own would uh, actually... Um, shoot, I got to find something. <laughs> <laughs> Just give it to Call Pono. <laughs> give it to Call Pono for taking his Kalasar up to Sohoris and uh, for reasons unknown, maybe they're they're still there. I'll give it to Tyrion for um, after he's talking with Halden Halfmaester and he's hearing Benero scream about Daenerys as Azor High returned. Uh, Tyrion is looking at the Red Priests and he's feeling uncomfortable about it, and he says. The only red priest that Tyrion had ever known was Thoris Amir, the portly, genial, wine-stained <laughs> royster who had loitered about Robert's court, swilling the king's finest vintages and setting his sword on fire for melees. Give me priests who are fat and corrupt and cynical, he told Halden, the sort who like to sit on soft, satin cushions, nibble sweet meat, nibble sweet meats, and diddle little boys. It's the ones who believe in the gods who make the trouble. <laughs> oh, there's so much to unpack that. that. <laughs> I know. Well, I was going to say, we didn't even touch on barely any of... Oh man, yeah, the, the Azor Red Priestess or yeah. Azor High or the Lord of Light or any of that kind of stuff. But yep. um, next time, next time. I'm going to give my own to this line about Danny being described as Mother of Dragons, this breaker of chains, is above all a rescuer. Because I think that's such an incredible insight onto who she is basically at the base. And I thought it was really good, especially coming from somebody who hasn't actually met her yet. So. I uh, spending the whole chapter saying we hate Tyrion and now I guess I'm just going to give my own <laughs> to <laughs> what he says. So <laughs> for Jono's chapter, I'll give my own to Mormont's Raven, his crow for continuing just to, to, to hang out and to always be around, always have the right stuff to say. I feel like he was part of the election. We all know that in our hearts. And I feel like he was part of keeping the crowd maintained here. Yeah. So owner of the raven for his crowd control corn corn snow snow kill kill etc <laughs> i'll give mine to dollar said that's good uh, he only has a few lines in this chapter but whenever dollar said is in a john or sam chapter he's almost always gets my own um and it's actually interesting because this is foreshadowing um something that happens at the end of a dance of dragons where dollar said is after he hears bow and marsh complain about john's course of action he says pomegranates all those seeds, a man could choke yeah. to death. I'd sooner have a turnip. Never knew a turnip to do a man any harm. You have cryptic owns. There's so much to them well, today. <laughs> Words of warning, right? Words of warning. Yeah, it, it's it's funny how they Martin foreshadows some of these major events that are going to close out a Dance with Dragons. But I mean, all your listeners know that it's John's death, but and that Bowen Marsh is involved in it. I'm going to give my own to as John is kind of rallying 
the free folk to kind of follow him to the wall. The young girl who reminds him of Arya, who steps out first and says whatever along the lines of the fact that she's not. How old were the girls that he wanted them to be? Much older than than the boys. 16 originally. Like 16. And she's not 16. And she basically says she wants to go too. And that reminded him of Arya. It's a good one. So own to that. Also, before we go, just lightly, does anyone really know what a spear wife is? It's a, uh, yes. It's, it's, it's almost like um, Ario Hota. Like his, he considers his wife, his, his spear, his, or his poleaxe, his wife. So they're women who are married to their spears and they're, they're warrior women, basically. That is so badass. Me as heck. Yeah. <laughs> Can I do All that? Right. <laughs> All right. Well, 63 strong added to the cause of the men at the wall. So we'll see now as we move on to your owns. If any of you gave it to that, I just want to say props to Jon Snow. You're not dead yet. And today seemed like a success. And I know we re- we gave... You're a little overshadowed by Tyrion 6 today, but you're doing good, Jon Snow. Hang in there. I still love you. So far, so good. Um, I'm going to read the first own because at Mariah Lovegood and I are on the exact same page. So from Twitter, we have uh, Mariah who says, for John 5, my own goes to the first wildling recruit, the little girl that reminds John of Arya. And from Heathen King, own to Lord Commander on his recruitment drive. Even if a wildling woman stabs the shit out of a crow, they're ahead 62. <laughs> <laughs> and Tyrion owed to GRM for putting that little hint in the Pisswater Prince story about Arbor Gold. Arbor Gold always equals lies. Oh, man. Oh, We'll make more episodes. <laughs> to come back for the, the next Tyrion chapter if you guys would have me, the Tyrion seven oh, chapter. Please. That's Definitely. all about Volantis, but I don't want to overstep my bounds. Anyways, my buddy Beauty Brienne says John gets an own for his surprisingly progressive stance on military recruitment. If you have a pulse, you can fight. And Brienne's own, Beauty Brienne's own for the Tyrion 6 chapter comes from the Sunset Girl, also gets an own for having to deal with Tyrion. No one should have to deal with him. Sorry, all I could think of them was Theoden putting crowns on people that are too small for them or helmets That's on true. people that are too small for them. <laughs> yeah, the uh, the kid, the kid soldiers. Uh-huh. Yeah. Wait, there was a third one on there. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, actually, Brienne takes that back. I take that back. Danny gets Tyrion's own for being either White Lady, She Jesus, or a bloodthirsty despot who mates with anything. <laughs> the rumors, I'm telling you. That's funny. They're great. Next, we have on Twitter at Unloused, John Owned to Ed, who says, Never knew a turnip to do a man any harm. He would kill someone with a turnip one day. Just watch him. Ouch. <laughs> and next, Tyrion Owned to Lamore. Her true identity is one of my favorite mysteries in the series. Even Tyrion can't figure it out. Julie Harris Green writes for the John chapter Egret owns John, body, heart, and soul. It might be the one thing he does know. Sad. Oh, man. And for the Tyrion chapter, Tyrion owns young Griff, outclassing him at every move. Poor wee boy. That's true. Uh, Travis Cole says, My own for the John chapter has to go to John and how he was able to be compassionate towards the wildlings and correlate their disdain for the Night's Watch with his. Is for the for the Lannisters, which is the point we talked about in the podcast. Um, if they were to ask him to come to common ground, the White Wolf is wise beyond his years. I can definitely tell he was raised by Eddard Stark. Where do I even start with the Tyrion chapter? It might be my Same. favorite chapter of the series thus far. Now, this guy is on point. I want to say that. Uh, it had everything from history to strategy plus humor and a captivating ending. I suppose this own is multifaceted in that I have to give it to two quotes and a description reference. 
The two quotes being, a dwarf's cock has magical powers and... <laughs> <laughs> it is even better luck to suck on a dwarf's cock <laughs> right right <laughs> the last part of my own goes to how Tyrion referred to Daenerys as egg on the conqueror with teats put that on the book jacket yeah yeah uh <laughs> next Thanks, from facebook we have simon admonson who says own to Tyrion for teaching the prince some important lessons in the game he has yet to learn Trust no one, think for yourself, and forge your own path, or be derailed by other players, known or unknown, in the game, parentheses, of thrones. Uh, Anti-own to John for leaving last night's supper uneaten. Winter is coming, Lord Snow. Kill the boy and clean your yeah. plate. Uh, <laughs> hashtag food waste. Hashtag poor three-finger hob. Poor three-finger hob. We have an email from Michelle who writes, Hi, Goo. Now that I've joined you in 2017, I'm just going to add a hi, Jeff, in there as well. I'm looking forward to interacting and experiencing the Feast of Dragons and Season 7 journey with you. To that end, here are my first set of owns. They turned out to be of the meta variety. Exclamation point. Mark thing. John 5, <laughs> owned to Val for describing the people of this world as good men and bad heroes and villains. Men of honor, liars, cravens, brutes. We have plenty as do you. Thus neatly summing up. That was a good Val voice. Th oh, damn it. I thought it was John. That was a John voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Oh, no. <laughs> you did your best. <laughs> Thus neatly summing up the entire story south of the wall. And for Tyrion 6, all the owns to Tyrion for his multi-page synopsis of all our hopes and predictions for Winds of Winter and A Dream of Spring, <laughs> right down to him gathering up the pieces when the battle for the Sivas game slash kingdom is over. I also enjoyed George speaking to Danny's frustrated fans through Tyrion and warning that it is a mistake to bring your dragon out too soon. I, I caught that. It's in my notes as well, Michelle. And I thought it was kind of meta of him to say that. And it was beautiful. Um, as a massive X-Files fan, trust no one also gave me a moment of glee. I wanted to honor Eric by not giving my own to a POV character, but Tyrion was just too good in this conversation. <laughs> Thanks for your continuing awesomeness, Michelle from the UK. Thanks for your first own, Michelle. Thanks, Michelle. That rocks. Good own, too. So those are all of our owns for this week and just wanted to thank everybody for writing in and participating with us and reading along uh, because it's so much more fun when we get to do it with you guys and not just us sitting on the floor in our closets. So <laughs> thanks for participating with us. Um, if you want to follow along with us and if you want to send in owns as well, first you can check out our reading order. Next week, we're going to be reading... Ooh, The Princess in the Tower and The Merchant's Man. Ooh, those are great chapters. Guys, Two chapters that have chaptery names. Just saying. Mm -hmm. That's going to be fun. So it's going to be awesome. One of them is called The Princess in the Tower. Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. Tweet at us at Game of Owns or write on our Facebook wall by searching Game of Owns on Facebook. Or you can send us an email um, at contact at gameofowns.com. And if you're not coming to the convention this summer in Nashville, two weeks before season seven premieres, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't directed to me, was it? <laughs> a little bit. It was. It felt that. I felt that. It's okay. It's okay. We're still figuring out a Personal way to put attack. you in a barrel to bring you to the commission. That's either way. Yeah. Just to plug a little bit, we've been meeting as a programming team quite a bit this week and kind of fleshing out the content that we're gonna have and the types of discussions and kind of formulating how we want those conversations to go. And uh, if you think this chapter was interesting. It's going to be a full weekend of 
as in the weeds as you could want it to be. So I'm oh, really so much cool stuff. Looking forward to it. Yeah, we've got some really cool stuff planned. I mean, I'm really bummed that I can't make it because all of the people that you have coming, all of the programming that you've laid on, and the venue itself all look and sound fabulous. Um, you guys are going to do a full report after the con, right? Yeah, definitely. you'll get sick definitely. of it. So I get to live you'll vicariously get sick of through, about it. <laughs> through listening, listening to you guys yeah. talk about it. I, I, yeah, I'll, for sure. I'll settle for that. We're we're trying really hard, and that means a lot. That means a lot. You said that because uh, part of the programming stuff, I'm like, I'm like, is this a, is a, is all of this smart enough? There's so much here, but uh, everyone involved has been such a everyone everyone's been such a huge help and uh it's been from us to other game of thrones podcasts to everyone working at watchers and everyone working at mischief and it's just been at this point now announcing two more guests today and there's many more guests to come if you're coming to the con and following our stuff just keep looking at conofthrones.com to stay abreast of all of that but we're just getting started it's going to be really really exciting this summer yeah it will be. As everybody kind of starts thinking about their packing list, don't forget to pack your bathing suit because we're going to have a pool party, Blackwater Bay pool party, whether it's official or unofficial. With wildfire. Uh, we'll see you at the pool. Are you going to make alternate programming for Con of Thrones? You know, it wouldn't be a convention that I attend very without George some weird nerve. pool. <laughs> yeah, some like weird pool activity. So, uh Yes, don't tell the uh, programming team. <laughs> Jeff, we're going to miss you at Con of Thrones, but we are so glad that you were able to join us today. You just bring this incredible insight to the series as a whole. So thanks so much for hanging out with us for a little while and uh, giving us all of your knowledge. It's it's always so much fun to come out and, and chill with you guys for to talk about Song by and Fire. I feel like I always come away from this refreshed and, and ready to be get excited about being a fan again and it's it's cool what you guys provide both for the show and for the books now and I'm, i really enjoy these these you know short two hour long chats that we have about two chapters <laughs> from a song of ice and fire so always a pleasure to be here if you ever want me to come on again i'm i'm, I'm more than game i was gonna say we we can we get you locked in for the next Tyrion chapter sure let me see what is the next Tyrion chapter it is Tyrion seven seven yeah, i think it'll probably be paired with the wayward bride yep the wayward bride uh, yeah that's another great chapter where stannis arrives in deepwood mont look forward to that everyone <laughs> that's gonna be fun yeah yeah well, th- well again just thanks for having me and i appreciate all the times you reached out to me and and chatting about this stuff on and off the air so thank you guys and looking forward to, to listening to this one too have a great day or night depending on when you're listening to this and we will catch you next time see ya bye